I don't always mention this, but if you are newer to Knollwood, uh, during the message, every once in a while, you'll see a slide that comes up that says, questions, text, Chris. You may wonder, what in the world is that? Well, we take a time of dialogue at the end of our messages, and so it's an opportunity if a question pops into your mind or a thought that you have, you can just send a text to Chris, and he and I will be up here uh, dialoguing at the end. And uh, so anyway, hopefully that helps uh, make the uh, message kind of bring it home, so... Let me begin with a question for you this morning. Uh, it may be not, not a pleasant question for some, uh, but it's this. Can you think of a time uh, of great disappointment in your life? Uh, of a, a time when you were so discouraged because things just weren't going the way that you hoped that they would or that you expected that they would? It's a terrible feeling, isn't it, uh, that can be conjured up when we think about that? Last week, we, in our study of the Gospel of Luke this summer, we looked at the account of Jesus' encounter with Pilate and Herod. Uh, when those have finished, uh, it ends with him being uh, handed over for execution. Chapter 24 of Luke's Gospel then opens with a group of women who went to the tomb on the morning of the third day where Jesus' body had been laid, where they could anoint the body with spices. But they discovered that the body was gone. Uh, two angels appeared to them and said, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Well, you can imagine this kind of blew their minds. They, they return and tell the apostles and others of Jesus' disciples and followers, what they discovered, um, there isn't really a strong inclination in the gospel account for them to believe uh, the account of these women. The encounter that we're going to explore today uh, begins with verse 13. So if you want to turn, if you have your Bible, go to Luke chapter 24, or if you want to grab a Bible in front of you, page 1125, Luke chapter 24. It's on that same day that the women have come back and told what they discovered. And then we pick up and read in verse 13, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So... Picture in your mind, here's the scene, these two disciples that are now making their way home from Jerusalem, about seven miles away. They're carrying on a very animated conversation together. Uh, the discussion appears to be very intense. In fact, Luke chooses to use three different words in his account in these verses to describe what's going on between these two people. The first word is in verse 14, they were talking. Uh, the word simply means to converse. In verse 15, then, Luke says that they were discussing. This is a word which means to reason, uh, to question, to dispute. The third word used to describe their conversation is in verse 17, where Jesus said, what is this conversation 
A literal rendering of the Greek language of the New Testament is, and he said to them, what words these which you exchange with each other? And that word exchange has the idea of throwing words back and forth like a ball. So, so one author puts it this way, in their bewilderment, they were tossing ideas back and forth about what they had learned and heard and understood and what it all meant in light of the development of Jesus' death. So here they are walking home, they're discussing, they're, in one sense they're disputing, they're arguing, what does this mean? They're, they're, they're wondering what is going on, back and forth. So imagine this going on and all of a sudden a fellow comes alongside them that they don't recognize and starts to walk with them along the way. And then Jesus asks them about their conversation. What are these things that you're talking about? And it's in their answer that we learn their situation. Let's pick up at verse 18. One of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who went with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. I want you to feel something this morning. Would you try to feel what these two followers of Jesus are feeling? What are they experiencing? If we were somehow to begin to put a list together of some descriptive words that would apply to them, uh, here are some that I think would probably come up on our list. Frustration. They're frustrated. They can't understand what's going on. Uh, I think there would be discouragement. Think of all the activities of that last week, from the triumphal entry to now hearing that Jesus has been arrested, betrayed by one of his own, and then he's on the cross. I think there's a crisis of hope going on with these folks. I think there would have been confusion. The, the tomb is empty. Where did the body go? Who took his body? They were distressed. And yes, I think even some were heartbroken. That would describe these folks, heartbroken. Have, have you been there? Can you, can you remember a time like that in your life? You know, these two disciples may well have been witnesses to the crucifixion. And what they witnessed broke their hearts. And if their faith was not crushed, it was at least wounded in what had happened. And can you hear all of this in Cleopas' response to Jesus when he said, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Jesus wasn't who we had hoped that he was. He hadn't done what they hoped he would do. And so they're wounded through all of this. And now an empty tomb compounds the tragedy. How would God ever accomplish his purposes through a crucified Messiah? 
So can any of you relate to the feelings that they're having? You know, maybe you had hopes that, that God was going to come through in your life. That he was going to do something for you that you hoped he would do. That you, that you thought he should do. That, that you hoped in the timing that was best for you that should have been done. And you're walking your path of life in discouragement and disappointment and maybe even brokenheartedness. It just wasn't supposed to be like this. You might even be questioning whether God loves you, whether he cares about you, whether he even knows what's going on in your life. I suppose to some extent we've all walked the road to Emmaus. You might be on a path like that even today. And we need what the disciples needed and what the disciples got. And that was a visit with the Savior. Let's go back to the text and pick up in verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus is firm but gentle with these two disciples. I mean, hadn't they probably heard Jesus say that he had to be crucified but would rise again? They just hadn't or couldn't see it or accept it, let alone believe it. And so Jesus gives them a little tutorial. He walks them through the Old Testament, through the Hebrew scriptures here. He starts with Moses, and I wonder if he even went all the way back to Genesis 3.15, the first messianic prophecy. Maybe some of the things that he shared with them included Psalm 22, verses 16 to 18, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Maybe he showed them from what he knew from Isaiah 53, 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes were healed. Maybe he told them Psalm 1610, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of the dead, or let your holy ones see corruption. Perhaps he explained Zechariah 1210, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and wept bitterly over him as one weeps over a newborn. Darrell Bach writes, This passage highlights the trustworthiness of God's word as expressed in promise. Jesus contends that the twofold division of suffering followed by glory is the messianic portrait of the Old Testament. Again, we know from reading the gospel accounts that the Jews, they saw the concept of a reigning Messiah in their scriptures. They missed the aspect of the suffering Messiah. And so Jesus begins to put the prophetic word together that they would understand at first it was a suffering Messiah and then only later a ruling, a reigning Messiah. They failed to discern the teachings of Moses and the prophets 
During his earthly ministry, Jesus talked about the testimony of the scriptures concerning himself. He told the Jews recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is, it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And as Jesus takes them on this journey through the scriptures, I suspect that it dawned on them that they were missing what their word taught. They were missing the whole picture. And the light of understanding begins to shine in their hearts and in their minds. It's the aha moment of perception and understanding and discernment. And so Luke continues the story in verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight." It really should not surprise us that Jesus would choose to reveal himself in this way as they broke bread together. As one author says, the table was a place for fellowship in the ancient world. Here, family and friends gathered to share time with each other. And so what a wonderful example this is of Jesus who reveals himself in the midst of the most ordinary, everyday moment in life. Isn't that so often where God is? He's in our everyday experience, in the things of life. The phrase that their eyes were open and they recognized him literally means their eyes were completely open and they came to fully comprehend him. This is so much more than simply a physical recognition of who he is. They came to see Jesus now in all the significance of him as Messiah, as the Son of God, as the risen God. And when does the recognition dawn on them? It's when he blesses and he breaks the bread. Think about that for a moment. I wonder if maybe these two were on the hillside in Galilee where they watched Jesus take the two fish and the loaves, and he blessed them, and then he broke them and gave it to his, those that were gathered there. Um, I, I'm wondering, too, maybe if they were on the hillside outside Jerusalem, and they saw them pounding the nails into Jesus' hands and into his feet. You know, whatever it was, we really don't know, but that moment the light switch was flipped on, and they really, really saw because I suspect as he broke the bread, they looked, and those, there were the nail prints in his hands. And as the light of understanding dawned on them, Jesus vanishes from their sight. And it's interesting, look what they said to each other. They said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Now, I don't want you to miss something that is so significant about this. Their faith was renewed. It was built upon the revelation of Jesus in Scripture, not their experience. Their understanding of who Jesus was and the significance of his death and resurrection 
and the call for and the need of faith in that truth was to be derived from God's revelation in the word. God did not want them to base their trust in just the experience of eating with Jesus. It was through the expounding of Scripture that they began to understand the necessity of the suffering and the prophetic fulfillment of resurrection. And now they begin to understand the reality of the empty tomb. Kent Hughes makes this observation, a privileged experience such as this, if not grounded in the word, runs the danger of becoming a privatized, eccentric interpretation. The couple on the road, however, were in no such danger. Their belief in the resurrection rested on the scriptures before they saw the Christ. See, the danger, and this is, we always have to be aware of that our experience isn't the foundation of our faith and our trust. It's important, it's good, it's welcome, but it has to be founded instead on objective truth. And that's what happened to these two here. Its impact is immediate. There's a satisfaction with the reality of the identity of Christ. Look at starting at verse 33. And they arose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. They could not contain their excitement now that their eyes were open and they really saw the risen Christ. So they put their dishes away. They grabbed their cloaks. They turned right around down the path that they had already come from that day. I would suggest that they felt a lot different going that way than they did when they came this way. They couldn't suppress this discovery which would now go on to shape every day of the rest of their lives. And God gives them a passion and a purpose before they'd known was pain. But this new feeling, this new resolve came from two things. It came from spending time with Jesus and it came from spending time thinking on the scriptures. Let me just draw a couple of conclusions, a couple of applications, and then we'll talk about it. The first is a question. Have your eyes been opened And do you really see Jesus? Someone has wisely said, eyes that look are common, eyes that see are rare. Do you look or do you really see? Confidence in who Jesus is needs to be based upon God's revelation in his word, not just your experience. Your experience is internal, it's subjective. But we know the truth of God's word is objective, it's external. And it's in the pages of Scripture then where our minds are enlightened that we truly might see who Jesus is. This is the place in which our hearts are warmed just like it was for these on the road to Emmaus. So are you in the Word? Does your heart burn as God the Holy Spirit illuminates your understanding and gives you insight to the truth of His Word and how His Word then applies to your daily life? Jesus is not in our midst today through physical manifestation like he appeared to those disciples either in the upper room or on the road to Emmaus. But we're called upon to see Jesus just as they did. 
through the pages of Scripture, through an understanding of God's Word. When Jesus first appeared, remember, to the disciples after the resurrection, when they've gathered in the room, Thomas, one of the twelve, is not there. And when they tell him that they'd seen the Lord, what does he say? Eh, no way. No way. Unless I can put my fingers in the place where the nails went, my hand with the sword went into his side, I'm just not going to believe. Eight days later, Jesus appears to them again. And he says to Thomas, put your fingers here. Put your hand here. And he says, do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Jesus then says to Thomas, and this is where you and I show up in the gospel. Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That's us. That's you and me. We don't have the experience of Thomas or the experience of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. We don't physically see Christ, but we see him in Scripture. And we see him as we experience him, as we believe in the one who's revealed to us in his word. The Apostle Peter was writing in his first letter to those who weren't physically present with Jesus, at least second generation, maybe third generation Christians. And he says this in this first letter, chapter 1. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We see Jesus in the same two ways that those disciples on the road to Emmaus did. Through spending time with Jesus, for us that's prayer, and spending time thinking about the scriptures, being in God's word, and letting his word open our understanding. And that's how we'll see him. That's how our faith will grow. That's how it'll flourish. And that's how we'll see God begin to work these changes in our lives that he wants to do. Here's the second thing I would leave you with, and that's this. Faith requires trust. It requires believing that there's more than you can just see with your physical eyes. One night a house caught fire. A young boy was forced to flee up onto the roof. And the father stood on the ground down below and, and stretched out arms calling to his son, Jump! I'll catch you! He knew the only way that the boy would save his life is if he would jump. But all the boy could see, however, were the flames and the smoke and the darkness. As you can imagine, he was afraid to leave the roof. And his father kept calling, jump, jump, I'll catch you. But the boy protested, Daddy, I can't see you. And the father replied, but I can see you. And that's all that matters. Some of us need to know that our Father waits for us to catch us. In those times of disappointment and discouragement, when it seems like our hopes are dashed, don't give up hope. He's there. And that's, we see him in Scripture. We see him in the lives of other Christians who reflect back to us who God is. I don't know what you're going through today. Whether your heart is broken, whether you're discouraged, whether you're distressed. We look at the circumstances all around us and it's very easy to be fearful and to be overwhelmed by what's there. 
We feel that we see too much, but in reality, we see too little. May God open our eyes to see beyond the physical, our senses. Might we see beyond with eyes of faith to behold this one who went to the cross for us, who was raised that we might know him, that he is our father who loves us and wants to take us through this journey regardless of what it's filled with. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you demonstrated that so clearly in sending your son to die for us. Lord, you call us into a relationship with you if we would simply turn from any other way of trying to save ourselves, of dealing with our own sin. But Lord, you then call us into an everlasting relationship with you, one that is filled with forgiveness and hope and grace. Lord, would you encourage the discouraged today? For those that feel like the world is just piling on them, would you just remind them that you're there and that you care for them, that you're walking with them, that you will take them through even the valley of the shadow of death, that we need fear no evil. Lord, we find our confidence in you, the one who gave himself up for us. And might it make a difference this week in the way we think, the way we live. Might we also encourage others along the way, Lord, that are going through difficult times, that in the grace that we've experienced, that we also can point them to you and encourage them to hang on, to keep hope, to keep trusting. We thank you that you are trustworthy and we put our trust in you and pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.